You're listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy. We know it's coming. The Cascadia Subduction Zone runs 700 miles along the Pacific Northwest Coast, from Northern California up to Vancouver Island. The Juan de Fuca Plate is shoved up against the North American Tectonic Plate. Eventually, the plates will give way, and North America will spring back with an earthquake anywhere from an 8.0 on the Richter scale to higher than a 9. It's known as a megathrust earthquake. In addition to severe shaking that will devastate buildings and roads, the Oregon coast will drop, then rebound west, and a tsunami will rush into the shore. We'll have a new coastline. We'll have widespread damage, crumbled roads and bridges, and limited or no access to electricity or water. Our fuel delivery system will be inoperable. It's pretty freaky when you think about it. When, not if, the Pacific Northwest is hit with a Cascadia subduction zone quake, we want to be as ready as possible. That's why the Oregon Department of Energy is working with fellow state agencies, utilities, and communities to boost the state's resiliency, a term used to measure how quickly services can withstand and bounce back after an emergency. On today's episode of Grounded, I'm joined by Deanna Henry, our Emergency Preparedness Manager. Deanna's here to talk to us about Oregon's Fuel Action Plan and the steps we have in place to get much-needed fuel into the state for emergency responders and other essential services in a post-Cascadia subduction zone world. So, Deanna, what does the fuel situation look like in Oregon after a Cascadia earthquake? Jenny, it's not going to be good. The entire region's petroleum supply and distribution system will be devastated. We have four refineries located in the Puget Sound area of Washington State. Those refineries are going to sustain some moderate damage, and even if they are able to maintain operations, there would be no ability to get that fuel down to Oregon. And the pipeline system that transports the bulk of our product to our Portland fuel hub, where seven petroleum distribution terminals are located, will be devastated. Those terminals are sitting on very liquefiable soils. So we will, in essence, lose the majority of of our traditional income supply. And Oregon doesn't have any refining capabilities, so we import 100% of the refined petroleum products that we use. Liquefaction, I think, is one of those terms that really freaks people out because it basically means the soil almost becomes like quicksand and those fuel hubs will just sink into the earth. Is that right? Yes, that's pretty much what we're dealing with. If an Oregonian, after the Cascadia quake, somehow manages to get their car on the road into a gas station, is a gas station going to be able to load them up with fuel? Well, that would depend. Does this gas station still have power? And we were very hesitant to let people fuel up because we don't know what the integrity of those tanks are at those gas stations. And so there's a lot of unknowns. And we would prefer that people not try to fuel up or drive around because we just don't know how safe the transportation system is. So the best bet for somebody is to stay put have your emergency kit ready, and wait it out. Yes. You know, Oregon is very vulnerable to a severe or long-term petroleum disruption because, again, the state has no refining capabilities. And under normal circumstances, the petroleum supply and distribution system is extremely tight. So we don't have a lot of extra fuel just sitting on hand. We are 
at a six-day fueling cycle in Oregon. So those petroleum terminals receive fuel every six days. So we have less than a week's worth of reserve on hand at any given time. And at our local retail service outlets, depending on storage capacity, we have about a two to three days supply. So we will run out of fuel very quickly after a catastrophic earthquake. So even if the fuel were accessible at a gas station, it would go like that? Yes. Since the fuel hub in Portland is so vulnerable and located somewhere where liquefaction is a factor, why don't we move it? That's a very good question and one that's asked all the time. We could move it, but this is an industry-driven decision. And even if they want to move, it is not as easy as it sounds. In order to move a fuel hub, there's a web of infrastructure that goes along with it. So if we want to move it to Boardman or to the Dalles where we're on solid bedrock, we still have to move that infrastructure, which means pipelines, need a waterway access, and then our source of fuel is still the four Washington state refineries at this time. So it's not as easy as it sounds. And then also, even if we were successful at moving the fuel hub, we still have the same problem and issue. Our greatest challenge is getting fuel to the impacted communities after a catastrophic earthquake without transportation systems, communications, and power. Oregonians may be surprised to hear that the Oregon Department of Energy is a responding agency in the event of an emergency. So can you explain our role in responding after a Cascadia quake? You bet. Our role is to ensure that we can get adequate fuel supplies to the state's emergency and essential services providers to save lives and to restore critical infrastructure and lifeline services to Oregonians. What are some of those services that are priorities for getting fuel? It's the state's law enforcement officers, fire service, public works crews, bridge crews, engineers, utilities, because we're all going to need power, those communications crews that need to restore our communication systems, all those critical lifelines. And how do we get that done? That sounds like a huge project. The state is devastated. We will be devastated. How do we make that happen? Our plan has evolved over the years. If you remember back in the 70s when we had the fuel crisis back then, we had the odd-even program where cars with license plates ending in odd numbers would fuel up on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and then those with even would fuel up on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And from then, we've evolved to focusing our planning to ensuring that we can get fuel to emergency and essential services in the state. And now that we know that we we have a Cascadia subduction zone problem, we now have a plan that actually takes into account catastrophic events to our system. And that is Oregon's Fuel Action Plan. Yes, and Oregon's Fuel Action Plan identifies nine priority actions that the Department of Energy would take to try to recover and respond and jumpstart the fuel supply in Oregon after a catastrophic event. 
And you mentioned that you've been working on this plan for quite some time, you know, dating back to the original 70s, which I think that fuel shortage situation actually launched the U.S. Department of Energy and the Oregon Department of Energy close after that. Yes, that's when the U.S. Department of Energy started working with all 50 states to kind of pull together a coordinated fuel response program, and it was to the shortage situation back in the 70s. So it's a long time coming, and you now have this beautiful fuel action plan that is now available on our website that explains these nine actions. Yes. While the Oregon Fuel Action Plan focuses on the Department of Energy's response to a catastrophic event, our nine actions can be scaled up or down to meet the specific threat to the fuel supply and distribution system. Can you walk me through the nine action steps? You bet. Action one is what our agency would be doing immediately after a catastrophic earthquake like every other agency. What we would be doing is assessing the viability of our facilities and trying to find out within our agency our emergency response team and who is able to respond to activate our emergency powers and take on our emergency authorities to get fuel moving in the state. Action two is how we would get fuel sector information out to all of our emergency response partners and stakeholders. And action three is damage assessment, how we would work with industry to assess their damages, estimate repair times, really how are we going to get our infrastructure back into operations. And it may look very different after an earthquake than before. We will have a new normal likely. Action four is all the work that we are doing right now with our counties, our state agencies, and the tribes to assess what their fuel needs might be. All this work that we can do prior to an emergency just helps us better respond after an event occurs. And so we are asking the state agencies, the counties, and the tribes to identify their critical missions and have a general understanding of how much fuel it needs to perform those missions critical functions. Action five is very critical. Since we are going to lose the majority of our incoming fuel, we will need to work with federal agencies, the military, as well as industry to bring in bulk fuel supplies into Oregon from outside of the region to do our emergency response and recovery activities. Action 6 talks about fuel conservation measures. We're not going to have enough fuel for a long time, so what can we all do to conserve our use of fuel during this crisis period? And then Action 7 talks about all the temporary waivers that we are going to have to secure to ensure that if we had fuel, that we're going to be able to move it without the normal regulatory constraints like fuel additives, like blending requirements. Because whatever fuel comes from outside of the region may not have the same requirements as what we normally use in Oregon. So that's just to ensure that we can move fuel when we need it. Yeah, and in an emergency, that wouldn't be as big of a priority. No, no, and it's only for temporary, and then we reinstate all the laws and regulations immediately after. And then all of these actions lead up to Action 8, which is fuel allocation and the crux of what our agency will be doing is to try to get that fuel from outside of the region into Oregon and to disperse it to all of our customers. And in this case, it is the state's emergency and essential services providers. 
And our last action is nine, is all the activities that we'll be doing to recover our systems and that long-term um, responsibilities of how do we return the fuel infrastructure back to uh, normal conditions or what the new normal will look like. Any guess how much time would pass from action one to action nine? We have guidelines, but I'm going to say from the time a catastrophic event occurs, it will be months, if not longer, before we will have some kind of new normal. And how will the state bring the fuel in? You mentioned that the refineries in Washington will probably be destroyed. The pipelines will not be working. So how do we get fuel into the state? That's a great question, Jenny, because we participated in two federal exercises in 2016 to flesh out how that would all work, bringing fuel into the state from outside of the region. So in the USDOE ClearPath 4 exercise, as well as FEMA's Cascadia Rising exercise, we learned a lot about how the federal government will work with the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho to bring in fuel in from outside of the region. This is what we learned. If we have a catastrophic earthquake, we might be so devastated in Oregon that we can't even reach out to the federal agencies to ask for help. So what FEMA has learned from many of their other exercises and actual events is that they're going to start pushing basic commodities into the impacted states without our having to pick up a phone and request it. And so in a catastrophic earthquake event, FEMA, the U.S. Department of Energy, and all their military counterparts will be already pushing commodities, even including fuel, into a federal incident support base in Oregon. And during these exercises, we practice with the Redmond Airport. So that's where all the federal supplies were coming into Redmond. Once the fuel came into Redmond, we then walk through how we would move these bulk fuel supplies to three state staging areas. And with for the exercise, we used the Portland International Airport, Salem Airport, and then the Medford Airport. And then from there, we airlifted 3,000-gallon fuel bladders to the impacted communities to seven different locations. So that's the framework of how we would move the fuel. The locations will vary depending on the event and event conditions. So what you're describing involves a lot of people and a lot of local communities. How are you organizing that communication? Yes, allocating fuel to the state's emergency and essential service providers is a huge undertaking because Oregon has 120 or so state agencies, 36 counties, over 240 cities, and nine federally recognized tribes. If we were to receive fuel requests from every individual entity, it would be overwhelming and hard to manage. So we have streamlined our fuel allocation process so that there are three categories of priority users. The state's 18 lead critical lifeline services, we call them emergency support functions, and each emergency support function has a designated lead state agency and federal agency. And then what we have is the 36 counties that's going to account for all of their local communities. 
and then we have nine federally recognized tribes that we call our priority users. So with our priority users, we've been doing a lot of homework, and we're doing that so that we're doing all of our work on the front end, so after an emergency, we already know the lay of the land and who needs fuel. All right, so you've talked a lot about this really high-level response. We've got federal agencies responding and state agencies responding. What about smaller groups like the counties and cities? How, How do we interact with them? We've been doing a lot of work with the 36 county emergency management agencies because they're at the ground level and we really need input from them. So what I've been doing with the counties is that They have to have the ability to receive bulk fuel supplies from us. We won't have roads. We won't have any infrastructure to move fuel by roads because there will be damaged bridges and infrastructure. So the initial movement of fuel will be by air. And so what we want to do with the local counties is that air response is great, but eventually we're going to have to regroup and get our road infrastructure back up. That's the only way we're going to be able to be sustainable. Um, That's for moving food, water, medical supplies, as well as fuel. If we don't have a roadway structure, we can't restore power. We can't restore communication systems. So what we've been working with the county on is to work with the counties to identify their priority routes that they would really like to get back up to operations quickly. And based on those priority lifeline routes at the county level, we ask that these lifeline routes at the county connect with what ODOT has established as the state's priority lifeline routes. And so in identify lifeline routes, we can ultimately deliver fuel when the infrastructure is back up to those counties. And within those lifeline routes, we've asked the counties to identify fuel points of distribution. These are key points that we can receive fuel by air and by ground transportation so that they can then distribute fuel to their emergency responders in the field and to their critical facilities. What about delivery to the coast? I mean, can we do delivery by boat? It seems like maybe that would be an easier way to get to some of those coastal communities if the roads aren't accessible. The coast is a different story. The coastline after a tsunami hits will be nothing like we've recognized. So it's going to look very different. And so will there be roads that are available to receive fuel? We're not sure, and most likely not. So what the plan for the coast is that we can request support from the Navy, and they have Navy vessels that can come in that could land right on the new coastline to offload a number of resources and capabilities, housing, power restoration, firefighting, and including portable fuel tank farms and fueling locations to support people along the coast. In fact, on July 31st of this year, Lincoln County actually hosted a demonstration with the Navy, and it was coordinated through the Oregon Military Department, where they actually brought in a Navy vessel and demonstrated how it would work at the Port of Newport. So that was a great learning experience for all of us, and it was really an honor for Lincoln County to actually host this opportunity and allow us all to uh, participate and watch the demonstration.
Sure. I bet a bunch of people went down to check it out, huh? Yes. State agencies, local community folks, uh, military departments. So we had a lot of visitors. Oregon isn't the only state that could someday face an extreme emergency like this. Are there other fuel plans like this out there for other states? You know, each region of the country has their own catastrophic event, if you will. But I believe that in Oregon, we have the only petroleum plant that addresses a catastrophic earthquake, or at least working all the way down to the local level. But I've had lots of conversations with other states because we have been asked by NASIO, the National Association of State Energy Officials, to profile our plan on a webinar to the other states. I've received a lot of attention. So states like Florida, Wisconsin, Montana, Nevada, Hawaii have reached out because they're all working on a fuel plan that would meet their region's catastrophic event or just a fuel shortage situation that becomes severe and has a threat to uh, harm public health and safety. So really you've created this resource that's not only going to help Oregon recover, but could really become a base for other states to figure out how to respond in the, in the event of their own kind of emergency. You bet. Any state can take the Oregon Fuel Action Plan and make it their own. Not every response strategy or concept might be fitting for their needs, but they can modify it any way they can to meet their region's specific needs. Well, and I imagine it could also be said that if somebody does take our plan and improves upon it in their own way, we might be able to take a lesson from them, too. Maybe they'll come up with a great suggestion and we could implement it in the future. You bet. This is a working document. We're always going to be refining it to make sure that our concepts and strategies actually accurately reflect the response capabilities and our needs in restoring a fuel supply and distribution system. And this plan will be updated annually or as needed. You mentioned earlier that this fuel plan is designed to be able to scale up for a really big emergency or scale down for a a smaller incident. And we were kind of able to put it into action earlier this summer for the total solar eclipse on August 21st. Do you wanna walk me through how the eclipse was affecting the fuel industry in Oregon? You know, the advantage to having a scheduled event like the solar eclipse is that industry is very resilient. So we scaled down our response, but a lot of the strategies we were able to apply. So one of the um, actions is to work with industry to assess a need. So what we did was work with our petroleum terminals, the fuel haulers, to make sure that they knew that there will be tens of thousands of visitors coming into Oregon so that they could take precautionary measures to make sure that we can meet the fuel need or the anticipated fuel need. So what industry was able to do was to make sure that they gradually maximize their fuel volumes to anticipate the significant increase in demand. They also worked with their fuel schedulers to make sure that we can increase fuel deliveries and schedule rather than once every four-day deliveries to daily deliveries to meet an increase in demand. And so they were ready. Industry was ready to address the increased need. And that's the beauty of a scheduled event. So what we were also able to do is get our fuel messages out to make sure that people aren't topping off their tanks or hoarding fuel because with the tight 
fuel supply system. Again, we can't accommodate for people doing things out of the norm, like gassing up, taking fuel tanks to go gas up at a station. So what we were hoping to prevent panic and just allow people to fuel up as normal. But, you know, whenever you have a scheduled event and there are lots of people fueling up ahead of time, what we found is that there were spot shortages all over the state, especially in the path of totality. So what was happening is that we had to really increase our capability to message out to people that this is expected. Whenever there is a run on fuel and people are concerned, so they go up and fuel up, doing things that they don't normally do, what happens is we're going to stress the system. And so we did run out of fuel and have spot shortages throughout the path of totality, but it was only temporary until the next delivery arrived. Yeah, it was interesting to see how the rumor mill kind of started swirling in those first few days leading up to the eclipse, which was on a Monday. So naturally, uh, some people started traveling the week before, and there was a large gathering happening in central Oregon, which is where I think some of the first fuel shortages started happening. And we saw on social media that some people were kind of spreading false information because they went to a station, it was out of fuel, And they were supposedly told that there wasn't going to be more fuel until Tuesday. And that wasn't an accurate statement. They were getting another delivery that day. But, you know, it's kind of that that panic situation where you need fuel and you can't get it right now. And so it just kind of spirals down and then people start repeating the message. And so what was great was we were able to get on there, stop that message and reiterate with Oregonians that, you know, if your station's out, hang on tight because more fuel is on the way. And I think that we were pretty successful in getting that word out and it was picked up by news stations and they did a great job of amplifying that message and I think overall it was not a crisis situation and we thought it could have been pretty bad but in the end I think the industry stepped up Oregonians were able to keep on the move as well as the visitors that came in. So were there any lessons learned from the eclipse? Yes, in fact, we implement our plan to address fuel issues with widespread fires in the state. There were a number of fires that we were dealing with, like the Eagle Creek Fire, that shut down Highway 84 to all truck traffic. That means our fuel deliveries were not occurring along the Columbia River Gorge. But we were able to work with all the fuel haulers and the petroleum terminals in Portland to find alternate routes, and really industry did it all on their own, but we were able to contact them, have daily reports with them. We also worked with the Coast Guard to monitor the shutdown of the Columbia River to river traffic. There were three fuel barges that needed to get upriver, and it was delayed, but the whole process worked, and the community was able to work together to resolve the issue. So we were in contact with the Coast Guard, with all of the state agencies that were at the Oregon State Emergency Coordination Center, with all of the counties, and we had daily calls to figure out the situation, and we were able to report on all of our fuel information and how the closing of the river and I-84 was able to impact um, the fuel situation in the state. We've published the plan on our website. What is next? There is a lot of work that still needs to be done. 
In this next year, we will be participating in a regional exercise with four of our Oregon counties, Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas, and Columbia, to really flesh out and walk through from the federal response down to the state level And then once we provide the bulk fuel supplies to the counties, what are the counties going to do to make sure that the fuel that comes to their fuel points of distribution then gets delivered to their emergency responders in the field and to critical facilities? So we're going to learn a lot more, and this plan will continue to evolve because it's interesting to learn from the counties on how they're going to distribute this fuel and deliver it to the folks who need it. And so there's a lot more work to be done. Talking about a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake is unsettling, and it can seem impossible to get ready for it. But Oregon, we're up to the task. The Oregon Department of Energy will continue working with our partners so we can help our state recover. Help your family get ready by knowing your plan after an emergency and having an emergency kit ready at home, in your car, and at work. Need help getting started? Visit ready.gov for more information. Learn more about our fuel action plan on our blog, energyinfo.oregon.gov. Visit our website to learn more about our emergency response program, oregon.gov energy. All episodes of Grounded are available on soundcloud.com oregonenergy. Subscribe to Grounded on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or TuneIn. And please rate us. Your reviews help others find our podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening to Grounded, a podcast by the Oregon Department of Energy.